Welcome to this week's presentation from Bethesda, a church community where anyone can belong. We hope that the following presentation encourages you in your faith journey. Thanks for listening. The psalmist said in Psalm 118.24 that this is a day that the Lord has made. And I'll rejoice and be glad in it. And we've been doing some rejoicing as we celebrate around the table of the Lord. We've been doing some rejoicing as we sang and worship and praise unto the Lord. And we'll continue to rejoice, I trust, through the word of God and that you will be encouraged and be able to rejoice leaving this place today as we go our separate ways a little later on. Before I get into the word, I just want to take a, just a quick moment and say thank you uh, for your prayers over the past month or so. And uh, as you've been as we've been, I've been dealing with a health issue, cover your prayers in the days to come. Prayer is the best gift that you can give. And so I thank you for that this morning. God bless you. Well, this morning I want to deliver a sequel to the tremendous word that our pastor preached last week. If you're here last week, a tremendous word. And I presently wasn't here in the building, but I tuned in through uh, the website and the podcast and, and heard, heard the word and was encouraged. And I encourage you to, if you were not here, to visit our website, go to Bethesda.ca slash media, and you'll find the message there. And you can also download or upload or whatever it is, the podcast, and, uh, and, and, and get your messages out right in a podcast form and tune in every week that way. I just want to take a couple of moments and just recap the word in case you weren't here, never had an opportunity, because this is the second part of uh, the word that uh, went forth last week as we do a mini-series called Jesus Stepped In. Pastor Bruce preached from the latter part of Mark's gospel, chapter 6, and in that text, the disciples we see were in a storm. Jesus had told them to get into a boat and cross the lake, and while he, they did that, he went up on the mountainside to pray. And maybe they thought he was going to take the scenic route around. I don't know. Maybe they thought he was going to catch an Uber boat, Uber taxi, Uber ferry, something Uber, and, uh, and, and get a ride with someone else. I really don't know what they were thinking. Either way, they obeyed him and took, him, uh, took, took off from the shore. And the further they went out from the land, the further he went up the mountain. And from that elevation, he was able to see his disciples as he made uh, the journey across that lake. While they're making their way across, Mark records that the wind grew stronger and the, and the graves grew larger. And even, even though several of the disciples were experienced fishermen, they were fishermen by trade, they were struggling and straining against the oars. And because they were in the middle of a storm, while they were straining and struggling and, and doing all they could to keep the boat afloat, here comes Jesus, not in a boat, not on a raft, definitely not in an Uber, and he comes walking on the water. Now, I have to let you know on something you may not know about me is that I have walked on water many times. All right? Wasn't in my resume. Uh, I don't think the church board knows it. But I've walked on water many, many times. But one, one key part, it was frozen. All right? It was frozen at the time. I grew up in Deer Lake and, you know, we used to go on skidoo and, and go ice fishing many, many times. And so caught many, many uh, fish that way. But I, I've walked on water. But Jesus didn't wait for that water uh, to turn into ice. He didn't wait for the lake to freeze over. He came walking on the water and to boot, he did that in the middle of a storm. And as our pastor mentioned, it was almost comedic to see that he that when he cut up to them, he was like, you know, just out for his morning stroll, out for his morning exercise. And uh, here, he, here comes Jesus, and, and he, he was going to pass them right on by. 
Like, hey guys, <laughs> nice day. <laughs> Whereas in, in Newfoundland, we say, our one, our one. That, anyways, I won't get into that. But, and I, I'm sorry for the translators trying to translate that today. My apologies. Anyways. But as you can appreciate, when they saw him, they, they were frightened to death. They thought it was a ghost. And before he, and I love this part, it's so small in, in a sense, but when you look in his, you read it and you see it. Uh, but before he calmed the winds and the waves, he calmed his disciples. And I love that. Speaks to them. It's, it's me, you know. Everything's okay. And when he did calm the storm, they were amazed and astonished as they still didn't fully understand his identity. Peter, according to Matthew's gospel, Matthew's account, being the impulsive guy that he was, he didn't fully wait or fully wait to understand it all. He takes a step right out of the boat and says, I want to walk on water too. Of course, he did that for a few minutes until he took his eyes off Jesus. And then we know, according to the story, he started to go down. Jesus rescued him. Our pastor also remarked that, uh, that we often overlook these amazing stories in Scripture because of their familiarity. If you've grown up in the church at all, you, you would have heard this story in some form many, many times. But he said it was important for us to not gloss it over because the disciple storm is really a, a picture of the fragility of faith in the middle of our own personal storms. You may not have experienced what the disciples experienced that day, but you may have never been caught in a natural storm, but no doubt at some point in all our lives, young or old, we've been faced with some kind of storm, some kind of battle. Of course, when we speak of storms, that word storm is a, a euphemism uh, for difficult seasons in our lives. When we are in a storm, we experience challenges in our health. Challenges in our relationships, challenges in our finances, uh, challenges in our marriages, challenges at, in our spiritual life, challenges at school, challenges at work. There are all kinds of storms that people face from day to day. And when we face storms in our lives, uh, it is important to realize, as our pastor mentioned, that often storms in our lives are the result of God being with us, not distant from us. He is always Emmanuel, which means God with us. Whether things are good, whether things are bad, whether life is up, whether life is down, we can have the assurance in knowing that no matter what we face in this life, that God, our Heavenly Father, is always with us. And if you're a child of God, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's in you through the Holy Spirit. Never leaves you nor forsakes you. Before I move on this morning, our pastor also mentioned that storms can be the greatest moments for God to speak the loudest. And that in the middle of our brokenness, amen, Jesus steps in. And this morning, I want to use that message as a catalyst for what I'm about to say. As I look again at Jesus stepping in to a difficult situation, speaking over a storm that someone was in and bringing about peace where there was pain. Father, I just pray right now you'd help me preach this word. It's not my word. I'm a commentator. I'm a preacher. But you wrote the word. It's your word. I pray, oh God, today that every ear will be open, every heart will be receptive to not what Rob Lodge says today, God forbid, but what the Spirit of the Lord would speak through your servant. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Everyone said, amen. amen. Turning this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. If you don't know where Luke's Gospel is, I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> But uh, no, just kidding. If, if, if it's in, you've got Matthew, Mark, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You may not be familiar. All kidding aside, is it third Gospel, okay? Uh, just in case you're not familiar with what it is, it's on the screen. 
took the time, put it up there. Also, you can follow along on the Uversion app. Just go to events, click on Bethesda, save it, and, uh, and, uh, and it'll be on your smartphone, okay? When you have it, whether in physical form or electronic form, say amen. Amen. Know you're with me. Let's stand as we read the word of God this morning. I'm not reading Psalm 119, so it won't be long. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in scripture. Just a few short verses, then you can be seated. Soon afterwards, verse 11, he went to a city called Nain. And after his, and then his disciples uh, were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he began, or as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And he said to her, oh, sorry, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Verse 16 says, fear gripped them all. And he began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And finally, verse 17 says, This report concerning him went it over all Judea and in all the surrounding district. May God bless his word. You may be seated here this morning. Jesus stepped in. Jesus stepped in. In Luke 7, we see that Jesus embarked on another tour of ministry that was filled with preaching and teaching and healing and delivering and all sorts of wonderful miracles. In the first part of the chapter, we see that Jesus first went to a place called Capernaum, which ended up being his home base uh, for his ministry. And while there, he ended up healing a centurion slave who was sick and about to die. And after that, we see that he left there and he headed towards a city called Nain, now, now, just for the record, this is not Lane, Nain Labrador, all right? All right? We know that Newfoundland Labrador is often called God's country. But, uh, you know, we refer to, especially if you grew up here, uh, you know, God's country, we, we refer to it. But it's not Nain Labrador, especially from Labrador. Hate to break it to you. It's, uh, it's a different place, all right? But an interesting thing is that this is the only time in Scripture that Nain is mentioned. And there's no record that Jesus had ever been there before. Now, he grew up in Galilee, and this is in that region, but there's no record. And so it's very interesting that Jesus heads toward this place. But you see, it was the will of God for him to be there. God the Father had a divine purpose that needed to be fulfilled, and so without being invited to come, as he was in the previous story, he said, come, I have a sick slave. Can you come heal him? He sent out on his own accord for this place he'd never been. Let me just say before we move on that, that there are times when God will direct us and lead us into places that, that we've never been because he's got something in mind for you to do. He wants to use you. He wants to bless others through you and through that process, bless you, in, in, uh, bless you as a result. Sometimes, you know, we fight the will of God because it's unfamiliar. Has anyone ever done that? You don't need to raise your hand. I know if I've done it. Sometimes we fight the will of God because it's unfamiliar. We're not, we're not sure about it. But when God prompts our spirit and when God starts speaking and directing us and telling us to go somewhere, to do something that we've never done before, we need to be obedient because God is up to something. 
And God uses situations that are unfamiliar uh, and directs us to step out by faith into the unknown to breed faith because we have no other choice but to trust him. And we have no other choice because we will fall flat on our faces. We, 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 we'll be like Mo, Mo said, I can't go a step without you. And so we need him or we'll fail in whatever we're endeavoring to do. And so led by the will of God and led by the spirit of God, Jesus heads towards a city that he's never ever been to, at least according to the biblical record. And so as he heads towards the city, walking in the will of God, he is not alone. As often was the case, we know that his disciples were, were with him as they, they followed him. But, but not only that, he was accompanied by a large crowd. And as you can appreciate, Jesus had a great following. There were many people who were amazed by what he said and by what he did. His words had authority and his touch had power like they've never ever seen before. And they were amazed because the kind of miracles that Jesus was doing and Jesus performed, they only heard about and read about from the prophets of old. And so they believed that the hand of God, like the prophets from centuries prior, was upon him, enabling to do the remarkable things that he did. And so while this procession of people led by Jesus was making their way into the city, they were met with another procession of people led by a woman making their way out of the city. One crowd was filled with joy while the other crowd was filled with sorrow. One crowd was filled with gladness while the other crowd was filled with grief. One crowd was filled with anticipation for what Jesus was about to do and the other crowd was filled with anguish for what they couldn't do and had no control over. And in a congregation as wonderful as Bethesda is here this morning. I would say that not everyone here this morning can identify with the crowd, the first crowd. There are some here this morning, no doubt, who's happy, who, who has a, a spring in your step, who is, who is, life is good, your children are, are doing well, your bank account is healthy, you just got a promotion, there's no sickness in your life or in your family, and you're filled with joy. Life is good. But there are some here this morning who are struggling spiritually, who are dealing with sickness in your life or in your home, who, who are struggling to make ends meet, who, who are in debt, who are dealing with trouble at work or dealing with trouble at school. And for you, life is just not all that fun. You get through from day to day, week through. You're always getting through. Life is not fun. There are always two crowds in every crowd. And the crowd that was making their way out of the city that, that day was mourning and, and weeping and wailing because they were a, a part of a funeral procession. A young man had passed away and the woman, uh, the woman leading the procession was his mother. We're not privy to the reason why he passed away. But regardless, it was a tragic situation, first of all, because he was young. Scholars suggest because he was, suggests that maybe he was anywhere from 24 to 40. I, that's kind of good news for me because I'm, I'm, I'm still in that young category, all right? But, but we don't know his age exactly. We know he was young. 
Scholars also tell us that most likely he died earlier that same day that because, and that Jesus uh, came upon him when he came upon him was probably late in the afternoon since Jewish tradition encouraged a quick burial in order to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness. Also in that culture, women usually led a funeral procession and the, the custom was that they would weep and wail loudly to express the grief of the family or the person who was burying their loved one. Add it to that, if, if the family or individual had money, they had wealth, they would hire professional mourners and professional musicians, flutists, I believe it is, who would help with the weeping and wailing and crying. But more than likely, rather than hiring professional mourners and musicians, the, the townspeople came along, supported her in her time of grief. The body would not be in a coffin, though there were countries and cultures that did use coffins, but here in this text, the body would not be in a coffin but will be laid wrapped in a burial shroud, the face exposed, and will be carried on a wicker plank, and the men in the crowd would be taking turns, rotating, being pallbearers, because that was a great honor. And they would make their way to a cave a few kilometers outside the city, which was their cemetery, and they would bury the dead from that place there. And as tragic as it was because of his age, it was even more tragic because he was an only child. He was an only child. The death of an only child in that culture represented to them, as it would to us, the deepest sorrow. It was one of the worst things that could happen. The prophet, or the people rather, who would have in their minds the words of the prophet Jeremiah, who's speaking about something terrible coming upon God's people, once said, put on sackcloth and, and roll in ashes and mourn as for an only child or an only son. A lamentation most bitter. There are other prophets who spoke similar things about losing an only child, an only son, and how devastating it would be. This woman's pain was indescribable. Her heart was broken. She was devastated. She was distraught. And unless you've been in that position... It's really hard to describe the depth of the pain and the sorrow that she was feeling that day. In the last church I pastored, I experienced being in a room of a situation that no pastor and definitely no parent should ever experience. And that is the death of a young man. This young man had just graduated from high school and after just a, shoot for, a, shoot, a short few weeks, had passed away. No parent should have to ever bury their child. So it's a tragedy. And after spending most of the week, many hours with the family in the Health Sciences Center, I was in the room in his final moments and when he passed away, it was something like I've never experienced before. And to be honest with you, I hope I've never ever have to experience it again. There was a crowd in the room Maybe 15, 20 people, family members, or close family. When he died, there was complete pandemonium. I think one or two fainted. Someone ran to the washroom. They had a big nosebleed from the stress. Couldn't contain it, kept coming out. Sort of big graphic, but 
The mom and the dad cried and shrieked and wailed and screamed, as you can only imagine, with intense sorrow and grief. People were crying hysterically all around me. And in the middle of all that, I was the only person that was calm, standing in the middle, praying and waiting. And I was calm on the outside, at least. When things calmed down, I went. And when the right moment came, I left the room that the where the young man passed away and I went to a smaller room where the nurses had ushered the parents into. Members going to them, kneeling down and saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for this loss, for your loss. I don't know what I said besides that, but I remember wrapping my arms around him and saying, let me pray. Let me pray, dear Heavenly Father. One of the hardest things I've ever been through as a pastor and as a parent, I can only imagine what they went through. I don't know if there's anybody here this morning who had been in that type of situation, but if you have, you can empathize, sympathize, and identify with this woman. And if losing an only son was bad enough, the agony of this woman was heightened by the fact that she was a, a widow. She literally had been down this road before. This was not the first time that she was leading this kind of procession for, for some time in the past. We don't know when, but she had led a funeral procession for her dead husband. And every step she took as she made her way closer and closer, it hurt twice as much because she was experiencing the last funeral all over again. And every step reminded her of the pain of her past. But as she neared the place of burial, she was thinking, what in the world is my future going to be? What's my future going to look like now? You see, she had nothing left. And she had nothing in her tank. She doesn't know where to turn. I mean, she had been comforted by the loss of her husband some time ago by the fact that now she at least has her only son who can provide for her and, and, and support her. Now that her husband had passed and comfort her, they have one another. But now that both had died, her world was gone. She was left alone. There was no one left to comfort her or support her. Uh, Thomas Holcroft, a, a, a commentator, he says, in that culture, a woman's security depending on, depended on having a male in the home. A woman whose husband and only son had both died faced a bleak future. Another scholar says there was no jobs for widows. Normally she would live in one of her children's home, contribute to the household labor and receive support earned from her fa for her family. But with no son, no family, a widow in that, in, in, in that culture was left to the whims and charitable impulses of the community. There was no Canada pension for her. There was no community welfare, no general relief for the poor. When her only son was being buried, they surrounded her with support. But in the days to come, Who would take in another mouth that needed to be fed? And already, many people already may be struggling. Widowhood would, could be very dismal and very lonely. But as she's leading this procession, her heart getting heavier and heavier with every step. She maybe, I don't know if she had her head down or what was the situation, but she's heavy burdened. She's stressed to the max. She's broken hearted. And she's leading this procession. She's wondering what in the world is going to happen. 
And as she's leading this procession in the distance, far off, she looks up and she sees a crowd coming. Don't know who it is. She looks back down again and she's walking, heavy hearted, burden. She looks up, they're getting closer and closer and closer. She sees that a man is leading them. She don't know who it is. He finally comes, comes face to face, stops. Meeting of two crowds. And they meet at the gate of the city. I don't know if this widow really had heard about Jesus, and I don't know if Jesus had heard about this widow. When he saw her, he felt compassion for her, and he said, do not weep. That's nice. That's wonderful. That's compassionate. You know, and I don't know what she's thinking. Do not weep. Appreciate the sentiments. Appreciate the condolences, even whoever you are. You see, the word Luke uses for compassion in Scripture is only used in this text and one other. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan, where, where the Samaritan had compassion. And it wasn't just sympathetic. It denotes, it denotes involvement and action. And, you know, the Good Samaritan stepped down, bandaged his wounds, took him up. Didn't just pass by and say, but I'm so sorry for you. Same word used. So you get in your, eye, uh, in your mind's eye the, uh, what's going on here. And so Jesus was moved to do something about her situation. Just do not weep, but he takes compassion upon her and he knew how desperate her situation was. He knew the grief and the pain that she was feeling and, and he does something that people would not do in that day and he reaches out and he touches the plank her son is laying on. Touching a corpse would have made him ceremonial ceremonially unclean and it would have become defiled according to Jewish law, but Jesus was more concerned about the woman then he was about his own, you know, cleanliness, um, ceremonially from the law. And more so than that, just, than just touching the plank. He didn't just reach out and sort of touch it. The word used for touch in this story is a strong word, and it means to lay hold of it, which presents the, the visual of, of Jesus sort of grabbing hold. Physically, to, to stop this procession, they're walking, he stops it. This would have shocked everyone, including the mourning mother. What in the world is he doing? As if he lost his mind. Who do we think he is? I mean, I'm mourning and, and grieving. And who, who, what is this guy doing, disrupting the funeral? But Jesus knew, knew exactly what he was doing. And while everyone is weeping and, and wondering what, in the world is going to happen next. Jesus speaks to the cold corpse there on that plank and says, young man, I say to you, arise. And immediately his heart starts beating. He starts breathing. His chest rises and falls. Oxygen comes into his lungs. Uh, the color that had left returns to his face, which is exposed. As I mentioned earlier, his body that was stiff is stiff no longer. And where there was death, uh, there's life. Complete change. And as he resuscitates, and revives, he sits up and begins to speak. And I don't know what he said, but I would love to know. Uh, you know, it must have been something amazing. As he, his arms wrap around his mother, and, and his mother, they embrace. Can't believe what has happened. The other day when I was in hospital, I was heavily sedated for a while. Day and a half or so. And when he stopped that sedation, 
He said to, by the way, he, he said to give me enough sedation for five or six men. Now, I don't know what that means. <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> and they gave me, you know, I didn't know if he meant call Jenny Craig or what, but anyways, enough for five or six men. But when he turned it off, it took a bit of time to come back to who I was. You know what I'm saying? Laura Lee can, Laura Lee can attest she's here this morning. She's, she said I was saying all kinds of stuff, didn't know what I was saying. Now that's not usually everyday. That's somewhat normal. <laughs> saying all kinds of foolish stuff. She said, okay, maybe, you know. Didn't know where I was. Thought I was dreaming. Said all kinds of stuff to the nurses. Didn't know what was going on. Didn't know where I was. It took some time. I'm not sure how, I don't know if I, how long it took to come off. But it took some time. But there was no process of coming back. This guy was not groggy whatsoever. When Jesus said arise, his immediate response, he immediately sits up and Jesus is here. Here, go back to your mother. He gives him back to his mother. And seeing this amazing miracle, the crowd of reverent fear begins to glorify God and praise the Lord and give him glory. And he said, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Most definitely he did. You see, this is not the first time something interesting about those two phrases that Luke puts in there. He's got a purpose, you know. He's a good writer. This is not the first time that these phrases have been uttered. The interesting thing about the whole, whole thing is that this parallels a couple of other resuscitations from the dead in the Old Testament in, in First and Second Kings. And that is what Luke, uh, uh, Luke's trying to do in his writing here in this gospel. He's trying to present, the, get the people thinking back to First and Second Kings. And he, he wants the people who are reading his letter to think of the prophet Elijah and his protege Elisha, who, two great men of God who performed similar miracles by raising a widow's son from the dead. He's done that. You see, Nain was close to a place called Shuman, where centuries before Elisha had raised the Shunammite's son, a widow, in, in 2 Kings 4. And the people would definitely have known, uh, and often been familiar with the story of Elijah, who, who raised the widow's son in 1 Kings 17. And I don't really have time to get in all to, into all the details and the prophetic parallels of, of both these stories, but there is a difference between them. And Luke is trying to bring that difference out to make a point. You see, when Elijah and Elisha Raise those young men from the dead. It took a little more effort. Elisha lay on the boy three times and he, Elisha touched the boy and then with his staff and then lay on top of him and, and, and resuscitated him. Some weird things, but God tells you to do what you got to do and he did it and he came back to life. But these were amazing miracles, no doubt about it. If we had done these things today, everyone would be marveling. But, but all Jesus had to do was just speak the word. Just speak the word. And Luke was revealing loud and clear in his gospel that, that, that Elijah and Elisha may have been great men of God, great prophets of God. They have been used by God in great ways. But Jesus Christ was greater, always have been, always will be. I'm going to invite our worship team to return as I bring this message to a close. One scholar says that Jesus demonstrates that he has power over death and demonstrates himself to be even greater than the prophets of the Old Testament. He fulfills the imagery of Elisha, Elijah, and Moses. He doesn't pray uh, to God to do this, his father. He doesn't go through any rituals. He just says it, and it happens. I've said all that to say this, as pastors say often. Let me ask you this today. What is dead in your life? What is dead in your life? What is dead in your family? 
What death are you mourning over this morning? Maybe no one even knows about it. You come to church with a big smile on your face. You greet people. You shake hands. You come in, sit in your seat. You maybe raise your hand and worship. But you're dealing with a dead situation. You're dealing with death. If you're here this morning and you're facing a dead situation, or maybe when you leave and you return home today, you're going right back into it. I want to tell you, when Jesus steps in and he speaks life, life can return to any dead situation, any dead dream, any dead marriage, any dead relationship, any dead spirit. Someone that once served the Lord. You've got a son or a daughter or someone that's wayward, a friend. They used to serve the Lord. Jesus can speak life right where they are today. Resurrect him from the dead. You're, not, you're here this morning. You don't serve the Lord. He can resurrect your life, your spirit right now. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about our church community, please visit our website, Bethesda.ca, and consider joining us for a gathering soon.